Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. When Joe Biden came to office, the Iran nuclear deal was on life support. Known formally as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, the Obama-era deal lifted U.S. and U.N. sanctions on Iran in return for Iran placing verifiable limits on its nuclear program. The deal was, of course, rejected by the Trump administration, which reimposed sanctions, and Iran has responded in kind by restarting certain aspects of its nuclear program. On the line with me to explain where things stand with nuclear diplomacy between the United States and Iran is Kelsey Davenport, Director for Non-Proliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. We spoke ahead of planned talks in Vienna between the United States and Iran scheduled for the end of November and early December. This conversation does an excellent job setting the context for those talks and also explaining the negotiating positions of the Biden administration and the new Iranian government led by President Raisi, newly elected this August. It is clear after having spoken with Kelsey Davenport that nuclear diplomacy between the United States and Iran and the other signatories of the JCPOA is extremely tenuous at this moment. And frankly, it is unclear if the JCPOA can be saved at all. And a quick note that today's conversation was supported in part through a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And as always, if you have questions for me, if you have topics you'd like me to explore or people you'd like me to interview, please send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hitting me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is Kelsey Davenport, Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When President Biden took office in January, there was a considerable crisis surrounding the future of the nuclear deal with Iran. The U.S. had withdrawn from the deal in May of 2018 and imposed a series of punishing sanctions on Iran, despite Tehran's compliance with the deal at that time. And then after a year of trying to work with the Europeans, Russia and China to realize some sanctions relief, Iran began to violate the accord in response to to the U.S. withdrawal and sanctions campaign. And at the time of Iran violating, then President Hassan Rouhani made very clear that Iran would reverse its violations and return to compliance if sanctions were relief were realized. 
Um, so fast forward then to you know Joe Biden taking office. You know Iran is in violation of the deal. Uh, Joe Biden has committed the U.S. to return to compliance if uh, Iran is willing to do the same, uh, and, and says he wants to begin negotiations with with Iran about that process. And beginning in April, the United States and Iran met indirectly in Vienna six times to begin to discuss kind of the sequence and steps that would be necessary to actually restore the deal. Why indirectly? Well, I think there's a certain amount of uh, legitimate frustration on the part of Iran uh, when it came to U.S. actions around the nuclear deal. You know, President Trump withdrew from the deal despite his own intelligence community telling him that Iran was abiding by the agreement. And you know, Iran you know, legitimately you know, did not view the United States as an actual party uh, to the nuclear deal uh, because of that withdrawal. Uh, so I, I think some of this was political signaling. Iran was sending a message to the Biden administration that reentry to, to the JCPOA would not be easy. Uh, and then some of it, too, was Iran playing to its own domestic audience. I mean, domestic sentiment against the nuclear deal you know, has really risen in the past few years in Iran uh, after having first you know, had overwhelming support when the, when the deal was reached uh, because of the lack of sanctions relief. So I think there were both messages to be sent to the U.S. Uh, and domestically in, in Tehran to, to really demonstrate Iran's dissatisfaction. So was there anything accomplished in these initial discussions in April? The indirect talks took place in six rounds between April and June. And by accounts from both the Iranian negotiators, the U.S. negotiators, the other states, a significant progress was made, both in looking at the scope of the sanctions relief, uh, because you know, Trump not only reimposed sanctions that were waived by the nuclear deal, uh, but his administration also pursued further sanctions on Iran. And those sanctions you know, have hindered or would hinder uh, sanctions relief uh, if the Biden administration were to lift only those required sanctions under the nuclear deal. Uh, so those measures had to be in the mix. So progress was made talking about the scope of sanctions relief. Uh, there was also some progress made on actually discussing the steps that Iran would need to take to roll back its violations of the deal and restore the nonproliferation benefits. Uh, but you know, there were still some significant issues when those talks stalled in June uh, over the Iranian election. And that those issues primarily boiled down to guarantees that both the U.S. and Iran wanted. Uh, the U.S. wanted a commitment from Iran that Tehran would engage in follow-on negotiations once the, the JCPOA was restored. And this is something that Biden made very clear from the onset, before he was even elected president, that he sought a restoration of the deal and negotiations for a longer and stronger nuclear deal and talks with Iran on a broader range of, of, of issues. So the U.S. wanted guarantees for future negotiations. Uh, Iran had some guarantees it was looking for on its own. Um, so when the JCPOA was fully implemented in the period you know, from January 2016 to, to May of 2018, when, when Trump withdrew, uh, sanctions were lifted, but Iran's economy didn't experience the boost in the investment that it had expected. 
And after the U.S. reimposing sanctions, you know, without legitimate reason, there's very likely, you know, going to be concerns if the U.S. lifts sanctions again, that all of these measures could be put back in place, particularly if a new president takes office in, in 2025. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like unreasonable for Iran to assume the United States to be an unreliable partner in these negotiations, given recent history. Exactly. I mean, U.S. credibility was dealt a serious blow. And it's not unreasonable for companies to be worried about going into business with Iran, you know, only to have to you know, cut those ties in those contracts because of a U.S. reimposition of sanctions. So Iran is looking for guarantees that it will receive, you know, a certain level of relief, you know, if the U.S. returns to the JCPOA. So it's not enough now to just lift sanctions. I think Iran wants some clarity on specifically, you know, what benefits might might follow that sanctions lifting. Uh, Iran is also looking for guarantees that the U.S. isn't going to withdraw from the JCPOA again without cause. Now, of course, in the U.S. political system, there are limits to what President Biden can actually commit to in that space. I mean, even if this agreement were a treaty, you know, there are withdrawal clauses in, in, in treaties and the subsequent administration, um, you know, could you know, decide to take the path that Trump took and, and withdraw from the JCPOA. Uh, so that's also going to be difficult. I think the Biden team is really going to have to demonstrate its commitment to staying in the JCPOA. Uh, if Iran does likewise. So what are the key interests and the key negotiating positions of the Biden administration at this point then? Well, the Biden administration has made very clear that restoration of the nuclear deal remains the U.S. priority in in these talks. But it's increasingly clear also that the Biden administration is worried about time running out to actually pursue a return to compliance with the nuclear deal. And that's because of the trajectory of Iran's nuclear program. The Biden team wants to ensure that if the deal is restored, they can message that the U.S. nonproliferation benefits from the deal are are similar to the benefits in 2016 when when the deal was, was first implemented. And that's becoming increasingly challenging to determine those creative solutions for addressing Iran's nuclear violations to restore those those benefits. Um, What the Biden administration is using as a benchmark is the restoration of a 12-month breakout time. And when I say breakout, what I'm referring to is the time it would take for Iran to produce enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon if the decision were made to pursue a bomb. Now, that's just the fissile material. That's not the weaponization, you know, which could take, you know, up to another two years, for instance. Um, so right now, the breakout time is, you know, in the one to two month range. So if the, you know, the United States, the other parties to the deal can come up with a package of steps for Iran to take that reverse its nuclear advances and restore that 12-month breakout, then there's still a path forward to restore the JCPOA. But if the Biden administration doesn't believe that 12-month breakout restoration is possible, 
then I think it's calculation about whether or not restoring the nuclear deal is in the U.S. best interest uh, will begin to change. Hmm. So that trajectory of Iran's nuclear program and how it influences nonproliferation calculations is, is very critical right now and I think will remain at the forefront of the Biden team's thinking in the next few months. But just to be clear, if Iran wanted to, they could reverse that progress and lengthen that breakout time by, I don't know, like dismantling some centrifuges or something like that? Iran could certainly lengthen the breakout time. And most of Iran's violations of the nuclear deal are are quickly reversible. Iran has taken steps, you know, ratcheting up its enrichment levels, installing additional centrifuges. You know, those machines can be dismantled and stored. Excess enriched uranium can be shipped out or blended down. Uh, But Iran has taken steps to violate the deal, you know, particularly in the last, you know, six, nine months, that represent the acquisition of new knowledge for Iran. Uh, So for instance, in April, Iran began enriching uranium to 60%. Uh, 60% is still below uh, what's considered sort of weapons grade threshold, which is 90%. But Iran has never enriched to 60% until this past year. Uh, Iran is also beginning to do some research and development activities around uranium metal. Now, uranium metal can be used in reactor fuel. Um, Iran says it's going to use this to produce medical isotopes. But uranium metal is also uh, considered an activity related to weaponization. So Iran is beginning to gain knowledge from some of these activities that it didn't have before. And of course, that knowledge can't be reversed. So the question then becomes, you know, can you come up with a creative way to mitigate some of the impacts of that knowledge. And right now, I think that's still possible. But the longer that Iran gains from these research and development activities, the more it's going to refine and master some of these capabilities. And that could fundamentally alter how we think about Iran's nuclear program and how Iran may pursue nuclear weapons in the future if it chooses to do so. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, time is short. It's not just the dwindling breakout time. It's also the advances and the changes in thinking and the knowledge acquisition that Iran is gaining from these research and development activities. To what extent did the presidential election in Iran, which elected President Raisi, you know, upend the potential or progress towards a return to the JCPOA. I mean, uh, a lot of the you know men uh, from Iran who negotiated the JCPOA in the first place you know, are no longer in office. Well, elections have consequences, and that was certainly true in in the Iranian case. And and yes, Raisi coming to power in you know being elected in June, taking office in August has certainly had implications on on the negotiations. Um, For one, I think if we look at how former President Hassan Rouhani treated the nuclear deal and the crisis surrounding the nuclear deal, he calibrated Iran's violations of, of the agreement very carefully to demonstrate that the steps Iran was taking were about leverage and about pushing the US to return to the deal 
and not indicative of weaponization activities. And he was even pushed to take some steps, I think beyond where he wanted to go, by you know the more conservative parliament in Iran, you know, dictating certain violations through legislation. Uh, Raisi is, is a very different character. I mean, he is much more skeptical of engagement with the West um, and generally more opposed to, uh, to, to the JCPOA itself. Now, the supreme leader of Iran, you know, has said it's in Iran's interest to restore the deal and Iran will return to compliance if U.S. sanctions relief can be guaranteed. So, you know, he'll operate kind of within that framework. But I think it is quite clear that he will try to get what he can sell as a better deal than what you know, Rouhani was getting, that he will push the United States to try to provide more sanctions relief. And he'll try to leverage Iran's violations of the deal you know, for more on the U.S. side. And I think that this is a very dangerous game that Raisi is playing because he risks overplaying his hand. He risks overplaying his leverage and the U.S. walking away from the deal. And that's why I think this resumption of talks in November, uh, no, on November 29th is going to be quite critical because it will actually give the United States and the other parties to the deal, and the clearer indication if some of the rhetoric coming from Raisi is just posturing, uh, trying to you know, set a harder line ahead of the resumption of talks, or if Raisi is actually voicing Iran's bottom line. And if it's you know, the latter case, then I think the prospects for restoring the JCPOA you know, are much dimmer. I mean, if, if you look at you know, the calendar, you know, talks are resuming you know, at, at the end of you know, November. You know, Raisi was elected in August, you know, promising to resume talks soon. You know, his administration has been stalling. Iran's nuclear program has continued to grow. So you know, now I think there is real doubt about whether or not Iran is serious about restoring the JCPOA. Uh, and, you know, I didn't have that doubt with the Rouhani administration. I think it was quite clear that they viewed restoration of the JCPOA and restoration of the deal as swiftly as possible as in the best interests of, of Iran. It's sort of tragic that you have uh, at one point a U.S. administration who you know is skeptical and hostile to the deal while the Iranian administration is accepting of the deal. And now the reverse seems to be the case as we head into these talks, as you said, that are scheduled for the end of November. Now, will these be, to your knowledge, direct talks? No, it looks like we're going to return to indirect negotiations in Vienna where you know, Iran is speaking with the three European countries party to the deal, uh, Russia, China, and, and the EU, and then the EU sort of as sort of the coordinating body for that group, you know, will relay the Iranian positions to the US and then vice versa. So, you know, and this is another- because or this is what Iran wants. Uh, you know, presumably, you know, Rob Malley, the US negotiator, would be happy speaking directly to the Iranians. I think the U.S. would absolutely prefer direct talks, in part because this indirect negotiating formula drags out the process. And I think it also can create space for miscommunication and mischaracterization. I mean, I have no doubt that the EU will play its role 
kind of shuttling back and forth between the two camps with the best of intentions, but that's not the same as sitting across the table and directly exchanging views. So again, I think all of this drives that concern about whether or not the clock is going to run out for JCPOA restoration or whether or not Iran is trying to drag this process on to gain more, to try and gain more leverage as its nuclear program advances. So having followed this process for so long, what do you think can be done to save the JCPOA at this point? Well, personally, I still think that restoration of the deal is in the best interests of the U.S. and Iran at this point, and that diplomacy remains the only option to address this crisis. Secretary of State you know, Anthony Blinken has said that the U.S. is looking at other options if talks fail, but none of these options are good. If you look at attempts to disrupt Iran's nuclear program using cyber attacks, the assassination of scientists, direct attacks on nuclear facilities. Iran always responds by ratcheting up its program further. So further kinetic action against Iran's program might result in some short-term benefits, might set the program back initially. But in the long term, that just risks Iran changing its calculus about the pursuit of nuclear weapons. It could drive Iran to believe that nuclear weapons are the only option to actually prevent further attacks, further territorial incursions. So I really, re- I really think that that approach could backfire. And I, I also am not sure that the U.S. can leverage sanctions pressure the same way that it did in the lead up to the negotiations on the 2015 nuclear deal. The Obama administration, I think, did an impressive job garnering international support for both UN and US sanctions uh, to put significant pressure on Iran. Uh, As a result of how the Trump administration reimposed sanctions on Iran, I think as a general result of you know sort of what's perceived as U.S. over reliance on sanctions and overreach on sanctions, I think you know, there's some sanctions fatigue in the international community, and there's some concerns about U.S. credibility. I mean, can the U.S. actually lift sanctions and provide states with you know relief that you know, should be at the outcome of a state changing its activities or behavior? So it's unlikely that the U.S. is going to get that level of support, you know, particularly from China, which is a key you know, trading partner right now for Iran, particularly with oil purchases. So I don't think sanctions are going to have that same bite. So that really leaves us with diplomacy. So you know, headed into these talks, I think it's necessary for the United States, the other parties to the de- deal to really think about how how they could put a package together that would demonstrate to Iran that it will benefit uh, from the actual lifting of sanctions, to think about some of those creative proposals, to perhaps put some concrete projects on the table to demonstrate to Iran that if Iran returns to talks in good faith, and, you know, and is willing to be similarly creative in terms of rolling back its nuclear advances, 
that there is a path forward that will allow Iran to benefit economically and allow the international community to benefit from the restored non-proliferation, uh, the, the restored non-proliferation benefits of the deal. Yeah, I mean, it seems that simply lifting sanctions or promising to lift sanctions is not enough for Iran at this point, precisely because of the unreliability of the United States and the uh, you know hostility towards lifting sanctions domestically here in the United States by a significant member number of of, of elected officials. So, like, what are some of those creative proposals uh, that are floating out there that would somehow give Iran the assurance it says it needs uh, in order to convince it to suspend its nuclear programs? I think the United States is going to have to look at, you know, providing some guarantees, you know, perhaps through letters or even you know, indicating that you know, licenses will be approved without delay uh, for specific projects. But those projects and investments are likely going to have to come um, from the Europeans or the Russians or the Chinese, because the U.S. you know will still have primary sanctions on Iran that will prevent a lot of investment. Uh, And just because these other states have engaged with Iran's economy more recently. Uh, So I think trying to perhaps find some specific projects, making it clear to Iran that there will be no delays, no barriers to issuing any necessary licenses, perhaps providing some letters of guarantee that, that there's space there to address what really is at the root of Iran's concerns, which is kind of that sanctions relief performance. Uh, lastly, is there any specific indicator from these talks or, or outcome from these talks scheduled at the end of November that you will be looking towards uh, that will suggest to you whether or not they are kind of nudging things in the right direction or it's more of the same? Well, I think the first round of talks is likely going to be an airing of grievances, primarily on the Iranian side. I think that's kind of expected, you know, with this new administration, given the greater hostility and distrust of the West. And I think you know, similarly, we'll see on the U.S. and you know P four plus one side. Uh, urging that Iran, you know, pick up negotiations where they left off in June, uh, rather than kind of resetting the table and, and, and starting from scratch. So, you know, I don't really expect much from the first round of talks. I think you know, it's going to be negotiating teams and getting their initial positions out there, airing their grievances. So what I would like to see and what I think, you know, would be a sign of success is, you know, as the talks end, you know, a clear indication that an- another round is going to begin uh, and-, and relatively soon. I think, you know, if there's a significant delay between the first round and the second round, that's only going to play into the concern that Iran is buying for time, that Iran isn't serious, that Iran is trying to grow its nuclear program to provide more leverage for talks. And I think that, you know, again, risks the clock running out or, the United States or the United States and the Europeans, you know, deciding that restoration of the deal isn't possible. So the best I think we can hope for, unfortunately, out of this first round is just agreement to meet again and relatively soon. 
Uh, well, Kelsey, thank you so much. This was super helpful context. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kelsey Davenport for coming back on the show. And of course, this is one of those topics that I will be revisiting again and again in the future. And just a final note that the opinions and views expressed in this conversation belong solely to either Kelsey or I. Bye.